Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of Current Events with Max and Colborn. It is our first Current Events episode of 2024. My name is Max Cohen. I am excited to be here with everyone and joining me as he does for every Current Events episode, my trusty co-host, Colborn Bell, the founder of the Museum of Crypto Art. How are we doing, Colborn? Welcome to the show, everybody. We are doing great in this new year. We are indeed doing great. I'm really excited for this one. We haven't done a current events in a couple of weeks, so we've had some like buildup. Um, I feel like I've been chomping at the bit to talk about a bunch of stuff that's happened. Been taking notes. I've been uh, compiling tweets, putting together hot takes. So shall we jump right into it? Yeah, I'm ready. Cool. So these are kind of from all over the place. And again, we'll have to like transport our brains maybe back a few days, even a few weeks to remember when some of these went down. But the first one went down exactly when 2024 started. And for our first current event of the week, I have the Steamboat Willie copyright expiration uh, that threw it into the public domain. And immediately afterwards, we saw the release of all sorts of, I'm not even sure you can call them derivative or exploitative projects. It was just people minting the Steamboat Willie image on Ethereum, on different chains, and managing a maybe frustratingly isn't the right word but uh despairingly high floor prices for those things <laughs> I, I i just i think it's very interesting obviously there's so much power in copyright adaptation and parody but i've never seen the expiration of a copyright be celebrated as an actual event the way it was on january 1st when steamboat willie the original mickey mouse cartoon became a part of the public domain uh, what was your reaction to seeing kind of how our little NFT community reacted to this with cash grabbing? Yeah, I don't know, right? Like you go to OpenSea and the top three trending collections are all the same thing. Yeah. So it's 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 nothing more than the way meme coins start, spread. I would imagine this is kind of a, you know, uh, an existing network of scam artists that run these types of things all the time i don't know how they drum up attention i don't know who is buying these things i don't know where people are hearing about these things but it feels very highly orchestrated manipulated um in the way that you know 99.9 percent .9 of everything in this world does well i also found it interesting because steamboat willie is not a native symbol within our world right pepe I get the many forms, the many parodies of Pepe, the many like transmogrifications of Pepe into this form or that form. I understand that, right? It's a crypto native meme. It has a kind of like universal um, recognizability within the space. But Steamboat Willie is just, it's, it feels so random. It's also like very corporate. Why do you think we have this desire to celebrate what feels to oh. me like the emissary of like a pretty... I don't know, hostile corporate interest. <laughs> I, I think it's, I think it's both those things that you say it's one, it's just the beginning of monstrous IP. Right. And that was kind of the fantasy that everybody was sold is that we are going to launch unique novel, new IP that in a hundred years is going to be so tremendously valuable that, you know, people will like revere you for your whatever vomiting, bleeding ape 
in the metaverse. Uh, so, you know, where this that took was me. so evocative. I, you know, it's, it's, it's just, but, but that's what it is, right? Like if, you know, you will show up to the party in the metaverse in a hundred years looking like a pudgy penguin and everybody's going to, you know, be like kneeling on their feet because there's only 10,000 of these and there's 10 billion people in the world and everybody lives in these digital worlds, right? This is kind of the, the pretend IP that they're selling. So here it is, you know, humble beginnings for a corporation, for, a, you know, IP that went on to dominate the world with all sorts of merchandise and, you know, multi, multi-billion dollar IP. So maybe, you know, that was the promise and maybe people want to own a piece of that. That seems incredibly stupid. Where it took me was to a, a piece that I own by a lot of money called Not Mickey Mouse 41. And I found the description of this piece interesting. So maybe I'll read it and maybe it'll provide some insight uh, into why Mickey Mouse uh, and the description reads, I know, I know, and I'm sorry. AI said every artist should have the right to make his own Mickey Mouse copyright symbol. I tried to explain copyright to artificial intelligence, and it does not compute. She says Mickey copyright is already part of a million images she already created, as is Luke Skywalker copyright, Ronald McDonald, or Mr. Poopy Butthole. I tried to say no to her, but I saw movies you know, and in the end, we all know who will outsmart us and win. Background is from the movie Fahrenheit 451, mixed with a picture of an Air Jordan 11 Concorde from Google Image with a mosaic filter and vector blurred movement effect. If you think this NFT should be burned, just do it. I don't have the courage to do so. Animated collage. So, you know, this is, it comes to like, what is crypto art, if not the individual in defiance of, you know, the, the mega corporation. And there is no, I think, greater, bigger false illusion of like, you know, capitalism wrapped and bundled in magic than Mickey Mouse. What is, what, what year is that piece from? Uh, I bought it in October of 2020 and it was created in on January 6, 2020. Okay. So the, I mean, the first thing this makes you think of is like, obviously it's parody, right? That's a lot of money's domain. That's why he remains just such like a revered deific figure in crypto art. It's just like incredible ability to parody. But what we saw seven days ago, we're recording this on January 7th, was not parody. It wasn't even an homage. It was just reproduction. <laughs> yeah. And I find that really interesting because parody is notably protected under, a, like you can parody many pieces of cultural iconography. You can create artistry over many pieces of cultural iconography that's been demonstrated time and time again. I mean, that was the whole point of uh, Warhol's Campbell Soups um, was it was just taking something that existed and was theoretically like, I don't know if it was copyrighted necessarily, but it was just like repurposing a corporate image for the sake of artistry. So we know that that is something that is protected works. speech. Yeah, yeah, it works, but it's also protected speech, right? You can remix, reuse, parody, manipulate these images, and it's kind of in this nebulous legal gray zone. The Simba Willie thing was just bizarre to me because it was just the actual images from that actual, I think 1920, I guess it would have been 1923, 1928. Yeah, a 1920s cartoon, which I thought was just strange. There was no artistry inherent in it. There was no parody. It was literally just 
reproduction and mass. I mean, by multiple different people, you know, probably artist unknown. I didn't bother to look in those things. How those end up trending on OpenSea is an absolute mystery to me. Well, and I get it. Like it's a, it's essentially a meme coin with a, or a shit coin with a picture, right? Which is right. what people have been it, denigrating a lot of cheap uh, NFTs is forever. Just because people are talking about it, it hits algorithms, it gets into people's feeds. You, you know, I, I still think most of this activity is like bots preying on humans. Probably, very potentially. I just, I, I find it fascinating that like really what the opportunity to use this character for now, like what has been al allowed legally is blatant reproduction. And that doesn't feel very exciting to me in the way that people were really excited about it. And it wasn't just the NFT or crypto art world. It was like, there was a movie um, trailer that was released shortly after the IP became public. Um, where Steamboat Willie was like turned into a monstrous horror movie slasher. I've just, I'm not sure why this fascination with just reproducing old IP instead of remixing uh, or calling back to it or um, invoking it in some form. It just, it didn't seem inspired by anything. And I thought it was interesting that it dominated the conversation as much as it did for at least a day or two, because it wasn't anything new, different or exciting. It was just, it was almost like an NFT recreation of the news. <laughs> I guess that's, but I mean, that's, you know, I think that's valid. That's kind of where we are in the cycle. I suppose so. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's just like big, points, yeah. big new year, nothing burger. It was basically the equivalent, the NFT equivalent of when um, Beeple made a giant, uh, one of his everydays of a giant erect penis. Um, and then the Solana had a, meme coin called money sign boner and it spiked in price it was just like that's basically just the news turned into a collectible format which actually is kind of interesting but maybe that's a larger conversation for another day it might be it's interesting but it's inherently probably pretty worthless i don't know whatever let's move on to uh, a second current event and i'm hoping that you can kind of dispel this for me because i remain unable to understand it and i'm there's a possibility here that you don't understand it either but for about a month now, maybe even longer, like ordinal madness has like returned with a vengeance mm. on Bitcoin. There was a 10 K PFP collection called node monkeys, which I think is still worth like a quarter of a Bitcoin per node monkey. It was, I believe the first 10 K PFP collection made on like inscribed as an ordinal. Um, I'm sure you are very opinionated on ordinals being that, there were so many inscriptions on avalanche uh in towards the end of 2020 20 i'm sorry 2023 that zero one had to go dark essentially because the transaction fees became so high and for a chain that prides itself on low transaction fees so i'm hoping maybe you could give me some insight into why this ordinals thing continues to feel like a powerful selling point and a powerful like gathering arena for like people within the nft crypto art world what is it about ordinals that get people's goats and make them want to continue experimenting with what seems to me a pretty limited and unexciting functionality on its face i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna call it like i see it right this was not a movement that was orchestrated by artists on a chain kind of you know experiment experimenting around this was orchestrated by by money and capital and people seeing what happened on a place like Ethereum and trying to figure out a way to do it on 
Bitcoin. Um, mm. So in my opinion, this was inorganic. This was manipulated. This was forced. Uh, and, but people are following it because of, because of price action. So does it have, you know, like the same heart and quality and soul? And no, people saw an opportunity and, and they marketed the shit out of it. And, you know, there's, there's reasons for it to exist. And there's a lot of people that absolutely despise it. Is it just the narrative of it being on chain? Uh, and perhaps is that I mean, a, it's like, it's yeah. not, but it's not, it's not even on chain to my understanding. It's not on chain in the way that we think of it on chain. So why is it exciting? Like what, what, what is the, what is the actual value add that people, I know it's capital. I know it's, you know, shitcoin pumping. I, I understand that. Well, but it's what, just, it's Bitcoin. It's, it's big dog Bitcoin. You know, and then they make up all these like rarity things about which sets are rare and which sets are whatever. I don't know. I've never really gotten into it. I'm not the person to talk to about it. Mm. It doesn't particularly interest me because I just find I it interesting know, that man. we're I'm seeing just... the same principle applied to chains like Solana and Avalanche. And I, yeah. I don't really understand. I get the Bitcoin thing, right? The Bitcoin ordinals, it, it, it's a theoretical way to have nfts on bitcoin even though rare pepes have been doing that for quite some time yeah. i suppose it's just is it just the buzzword of inscriptions or ordinals and then that being applied elsewhere is just going to provide something a financial boost or is there something that's actually I mean, noteworthy about this process uh no you know all of this hype is is driven by speculation right so i think people actually made some good amount of money when they brought it over to Solana and that's when they started to replicate it across chains. Now, my understanding is that the people who did this on Avalanche, they didn't really make any money. Uh, but this is, this is also the second time that we've had to shut down the platform. So, you know, this is, um, you know, I've read somewhere a great, this is, you know, like a coordinated civil attack on a chain to get attention. Right. And just as much as people are like, what the fuck is going on? Well, here we are talking about it. So then more people are going to, you know, investigate what it is. More artists are going to get pulled in. Stuff is going to be created. And at the end of the day, it's net positive value based on something that was kind of an attack on a chain to begin with. Yeah. I mean, it was created almost as like a response to Ethereum or I, I find it very hard to understand. I think the tech is hard to understand. It's, it's not, it's storing some sort of, you know, it's program is inscribing some sort of call function that relates to, you know, the, the image that is held somewhere. I just, I don't understand the attractiveness of the functionality, but people seem to be drawn to it. I just, I think it's fascinating. Um, it's orchestrated, man. It's, it's orchestrated from, from VCs who wanted their fix, who didn't get their hands around what was happening on Ethereum because again, that was organic artist led mm -hmm. and they didn't, they didn't see it. They didn't understand it. Right. Sure. And then that's where the use case was proven. So it's like, let's just export this to all other chains, hmm. which in my opinion is, is not, a, it's not a bad thing. Right. And we were saying this on the resolution show, uh, you know, as an artist, you want to be everywhere. You want to be diversified across these chains. You can't, you don't have the luxury of being a maximalist with your art. Mm -hmm. It's the whole, you know, I'll say it, it's, it's radical abundance in expression uh, there and, is. <laughs> and distribution. Right. So I'm, I'm all 
all for it. But at the end of the day, you, you can't be everywhere. And that's just, you know, that's not something, whatever those node monkeys things were, not something I was particularly interested in. And I'm, I'm not going to, by the time you hear about it on Twitter, you're always, always, always late. You're buying the peak. Because mm. you are hearing it at the same time that everybody else is hearing about it. And these start, you know, one or two levels lower. Nothing just like immediately goes public. Well said. Okay. Uh, let's move on to my third current event of the day, uh, which I feel like did not get nearly enough buzz uh, for what feels to me like it's pretty momentous importance, which was that um, tucked into a little funding bill in the United States Congress <laughs> was a clause that noted uh, and is now legally binding, even though there's no IRS guidance on how this is actually to take place, that all crypto transactions of over $10,000 in United States currency must be reported to the IRS with the name, social security number, address of the um, party that provided those funds. Again, the IRS did not provide any guidelines on how that's actually to take place. I believe it's Coindesk that is, um, they like are suing the law because of its unconstitutionality. And because I think it's, probably Coin Center. Coin Center, thank you. Yeah, it's Coin yeah. Center um, that has a lawsuit currently um, in the United States courts talking about the unconstitutionality of this. But obviously, this is a rather big deal because of the continued centralization of many of the art world powers within the US, or at least. Um, buying powers within the U.S. and the continued anonymity of this space, uh, even though pretty much every big actor has fallen victim to mandates from this or that government to institute um, know your customer uh, rules. This seems to be trying to apply that to peer to peer transactions. And it seems like this is a pretty big deal, but I'm not sure that we have. I mean, we obviously haven't really seen it take place in the sense that like the U S government has come after anyone quite yet for failing to abide by this guideline. But I'm curious your opinion on this and what you think it does. Is it going to have a chilling effect on transactions? And also it's important to note that this is not individual transactions. This is collected transactions of over 10,000 USD. So you can't just do 5,000 here and 5,001 in a different transaction. Mm -hmm. And, and it was $600, no? Same as the Venmo PayPal reporting requirements for all crypto transactions, but for any transaction in excess of $600, you need like the name of the person, the, their address, their social security number. Um, look, man, you know, the, <laughs> we're, we're getting dragged into two wars. We have $34 trillion in debt and in the government, you know, needs every penny. Uh, it's certainly not, you know, people like, right. Apple, Google, Microsoft offshoring their IP and paying tax and not paying taxes on their revenue. No, it's, it's the person. Mm. Right. So, you know, and guess who, you know, the, the administrative burden is on it's, it's on you as an individual to, to report that, um, obviously onerous, overly onerous and burdensome, um, and, you know, all I can say, all that I want to say, I don't really even know if I, I should say. 
uh it's it's pretty it's ridiculous well you chew over whether you want to say it or not i just want to like i can't help but continue to feel that and perhaps uh, this i don't want this to sound political because it's not it's more just i have a fear that you know we've talked a lot about ai and blockchain as being kind of picture perfect made for each other partners in whatever the next iteration of the internet is right the more there is going to be AI creations of images, thoughts, articles, et cetera, the more we're going to value identity verification. So by that logic, and I, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that like these two things are going to only become exponentially more important in the coming years, there's just going to be more blockchain usage. There's going to be more um, people who are forced and not just people, but companies that are forced to engage in blockchain transactions. It seems to me that the U.S. is actively pushing blockchain usage away from itself for the sake of, you know, whatever it's posturing as regulation or safety or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm nervous that this is just going to, it's a continuing trend where this entire ecosystem is forced out of the U.S. because of these laws, which I think to the average person probably makes sense on their face but no it's crazy i mean look it's 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 all of course about control and power and and subservience right continuing to keep a working class that uh adheres to and works for those who are currently in power right so big tech big government conspire to like have all the data to reduce volatility in capital markets and to have predictability Right. This is how things stay the same. This is why, you know, the current existing equity companies will continue to go up. Right. And these are how they can, like, predict the models and print the money and issue the Treasury bills and fund the wars and never pay for, like, infrastructure and education because they don't want people to succeed. The American dream is long dead. And that, frankly, is is the goal. It's the people in power that want to stay in power, you know, the, from the legislators to the big, like private corporations to the donors, everybody is, is angling for the same thing at the top. I do want to note that this is actually, it's not unique in the American financial system. Um, in 1970, uh, President Richard Nixon signed the Bank Secrecy Act, which was, uh, as I'm reading, part of the Currency and Foreign Transactions Reporting Act. So the idea was there had to be some way to keep criminals from using banks and other financial institutions to like money launder um, from illegally garnered payments, right? $10,000 is the limit set in 1970. Uh, I'm referring to a tweet. I can't remember who said it, but that does not adjust for inflation. $10,000 in 1970 is something akin to like $170,000 today. And the law has just not kept up with that. So I'm curious, like if this law were to account for inflation, right? And it were to say any transaction over 170,000 United States dollars, would we be talking about it completely differently? Um, is this a case of, you know, governments in general being too slow to respond to like the financial realities of the countries that they oversee? Or is this, and maybe the answer is both, is it intentionally provocative and de-empowering? Yeah, this is this is entirely about control. This is intentionally provocative and de-empowering. This is the slow erosion of the individual's rights in the system. This is, you know, 
how inflation is taxed and this is how privacy is stolen. It's bit by bit. And you can't really complain because you don't really feel it happening. And then suddenly, whatever it is, 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, it's all gone. So do we see people who are engaged in this ecosystem just leaving the U.S. or not engaging with the U.S. financial system because of all these rules? I mean, for every you know, large scale draconian. Well, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's one thing about having a law on the book and there's another thing about enforcing it. Sure. Right. So they want the back door so they can go after the people when they want the people. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be selectively applied to very specific people. Is this probably going to be applied to every artist selling NFTs? No, as long as they're reporting their taxes, whatever, you Mm -hmm. know, but then, you know, if they want to catch somebody and they want to throw, you know, more whatever in their face, uh, there it is, you know, plain as day passed in, you know, Jan 1st, 2024, great year. But you don't think that it's going to chill artists and collectors within the U.S. or outside of the U.S. from transacting with artists and collectors within the U.S.? It seems... I mean, it just forces dangerous. a bad feedback loop, right? It makes everybody be anonymous. It incentivizes people to not report this stuff, you know, and... And it's it's the lack of clarity and probably the, you know, the, the the burden to do this that, yeah, it's, you know, retroactively, it's it would just be impossible. Mm-hmm. So what are the types of behaviors that they are controlling for? What do they want to see? Um, has it, you know, it has in the past driven people away from the U.S., of course. Right. It's driven me away from the U.S. It's driven uh, all sorts of countless peers, entrepreneurs, people working in the space that actually believe in decentralization. But um, <laughs> America is, you know, the, the world's centralizing force. And it's going to fight, obviously, tooth and nail to, to protect that because that is its comparative advantage. Naturally. Um, OK, I have I have one more current event that I just wanted to touch on really quickly. Um and I was just hoping for your opinion on it. So obviously, I love Solana PFPs on a Bashed fan, uh, avowed fan. Um, it's been interesting to watch in my orbit more and more discussion of Avalanche PFPs, um, and it feels like the Avalanche Foundation or the like people involved in Avalanche's blockchain are actively courting the PFP world. Maybe they're just courting the NFT world at large. But I keep seeing things about like Dokios. Um, I don't own any, I don't own anything on Avalanche outside of zero one, but they seem to be making a dent in the larger PFP ecosystem, um, hyperspace, the, I believe it's the platform through which a lot of these things are traded on Avalanche just launched a big airdrop, which is always going to draw attention and funds into whatever ecosystem it's on. I'm just curious because of your you know, pretty deep network at this point, all the building you've done on Avalanche, what is your take on avalanche trying to make a concerted effort to dominate more and more of like the pfp market that's an interesting question i don't i don't know you know i remember when these dokio things launched it was pretty much at the exact same time that zero one launched but again it's it's not for nothing if we're here talking about it Mm -hmm. right so each of these chains is going to have its own kind of identity and culture surrounding cultural assets that will speak to what the people on that chain are like and are about. 
and you can, I think, begin to, you know, delineate what those types of people are based on this cultural imagery and the meme coins. And does that, does that make sense? It helps to build like a brand identity and awareness of the people that are participating and is an in-group that calls for others to participate if they like those things. Right. I don't think it's much of a surprise that <laughs> this is so stupid. I can't believe we're talking about this, but that like the Solana meme coin was boner and the, you know, the avalanche meme coin was cock Inu. And <laughs> you know, this is, this is obvious. I don't know, man. It's, it's uh, everything, you know, tech largely skews to, you know, a, uh, a teenage boy's frustrated expression of the world, but it, you see the lineage of, of crypto dick butts and all of these, it, it, you know, the, the world is not so simple. It's pretty crass. That's a good point. Um, yeah. I don't have many thoughts on this myself other than I find it interesting to see avalanche, which I believe has not had is certainly at least in the last cycle did not have the same kind of um, NFT powerhouse, capability that like a Solana or an Ethereum did kind of trying to push into this market, you know, through things like zero one on the art side, but also through, you know, the PFP world, the meme coin world, just kind of trying to capture this market share, but on a pretty concerted, in a pretty concerted way and in a pretty concerted manner. Yeah. I mean, you look at the top 10 by market cap and you begin to think about like what, what is, okay. Like Bitcoin and Ethereum, they obviously have identity. Tether doesn't really matter. It's a stable coin. BNB, Binance, you, you know, there's identity there with CZ uh, and, and kind of being a market leader and that whole rise. Uh, Solana also, there's like real baked in identity to these chains. And then you get to Ripple and you, you mm. kind of begin to wonder, you know, what, <laughs> what, what is Ripple about? You know, I remember 2017, hashtag XRP Army. They went, had people everywhere. It was hard to believe how feverish these people were. But this was, you know, this was the bank transfer coin. This was the one that banks were going to adopt. Mm -hmm. um, hard for me to believe it's still six. USDC, a stable coin, Cardano, you know, that to me was always peer research reviewed Ethereum. So that one skews highly academic. And then it's Avalanche and then it's Dogecoin. Weird. Everybody, yeah, everybody is fighting for market share and these identities are emerging, but nothing is kind of as ubiquitous as say, you know, like a Google, Apple, Microsoft, which might also have their niches, but a real line in the sand was drawn between like iPhone and Android users and what that says about that person and kind of what they're looking for. Same as the operating systems, right? Like Windows, Macs, and Linux. Look, well, it's... It it continues a trend for me that like we still don't know what this tech is really for. And because we don't really know what this tech is for or what it can be used for, there's not a seemingly comprehensive idea of like how to emerge into new markets or how to capture new markets. So instead we're just trying to capture shares of this pre-existing, you know, basically like meme trading ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, and that just feels like a very strange place to be in when like a chain like avalanche, which is so highly funded. And so I, I think that they, they do a pretty good job at, at both communication and um, 
like just intentional deployment of funds in interesting ways. Like I really respect their desire to like provide a, a, a place where something like zero one can be created. It just seems, I don't know if sad is the right word, but a little bit um, disheartening that these chains are still just trying to capture shares of an existing market, which we've seen throughout the last year and a half before, you know, the, the, this recent like run of cryptocurrency prices was, kind of a, a kill or be killed, eat or be eaten situation where there weren't very many winners and people weren't very happy in the ecosystem. It seems like we've forgotten that we went through pretty much like two years of pain and comprehensive dissatisfaction. And now it's like trying to eat up a share of that market. Like, I don't know if that's a good- Well, but, but it's, think, of, think of it in context of all of the, you know, Tezos is over talk that's been happening lately. Right. And obviously this is something I've been saying for years and years and years, but it, the, the, the market for low cost, abundant NFTs is wide open, especially in art, Mm -hmm. right? People want to go and they want to collect from their artists and they want to build a low cost collection and they want to say that they're supporting each other, but it, it's, you know, really after was Tez pull kind of the, the rug that Tezos pulled on the artist. It's we are like deep bear and everybody is struggling and you're really beginning to see some of like the psychology and the fanaticism of maximalism around certain projects begin to fade. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they're no longer supporting or, or uh, justifying said fanaticism. So it's kind of open season and all of those names that you mentioned are going to fight for this crown. It's, it's, it cannot happen. Again, this is something I've been saying for a long time. It, we cannot reach mass adoption on Ethereum. And that's something that Solana has been incredible at. It's like reaching people, getting people there. Even if it is degenerate, this is, these are the first movers. Like gambling is the first mover for any new tech. And there's a lot of people out there in these structures, it goes back to kind of the U.S. government pressing down that are willing to take a chance in a system that they feel is rigged and unfair to the individual. So, you know, if I was a foundation of, you know, if I ran a foundation for one of these chains, this is probably a lot of the activity that I would be supporting as well. A lot of it is talk. A lot of it is just hype. And and frankly, inserting in oneself that, into the conversation. It's been that way forever. It's, uh, you, you know, you literally manifest through the communication, the actual things that people want. And, you know, once you put those ideas in people's heads, that is when they begin to use it, right? If people keep going around and saying that Tokyo is the premier EFP on Avalanche, then more people are going to come to Avalanche and they're going to just see that and believe that. Yep. And they'll be in the ecosystem and they'll be responding to the meme coins there, I suppose. Totally. Um, okay. I wanted to end today with a new segment that uh, was your brainchild. Mok ya and mok na. <laughs> I'm going to pick a tweet for each category and we can just say a little bit on it and then move on. But uh, we'll evolve this in real time. But my uh, mok ya tweet of the week was from uh, our friend Clara Volstadt. Um, referring to the what we just talked about with the uh, $10,000 reporting, uh, cryptocurrency reporting uh, requirements for the U.S. Quote, 
As a Canadian, I am happy to announce that I will be the only artist to sell for above ten thousand dollars in twenty twenty four. Mokia Queen, Mokia. Yeah, Mokia. Um, again, which is a more or less an evocation of the fear that I had mentioned before, which is, are we just going to see movement away from the U.S. of all this whole ecosystem because people don't want to deal with what I assume are going to be ever more draconian uh, Look, requirements, it, regulations. It pushes people back into the dark. It makes people uh, take really unnecessary risks and chances. You know, I, I was always told that there is kind of like a clause somewhere that says that, you know, the people should be able to complete their taxes to the best of their ability. And as somebody that has spent, I'm not kidding, like two weeks straight every day working on taxes because of crypto, it's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. And it shouldn't have to be that way. And that's that's a bummer because we should be encouraging people to, you know, be open and experiment and find new things. But it, it goes against kind of the, the nature of the system. So I, I understand the system's impulse to kind of re- reject and and make people who are participating in this. Imagine like selling your art online to feel as if they're criminals. Mm. You are criminals. If you sell art online and you make a handsome living, you are a criminal. Thanks, U.S. government, for letting us know. Uh, okay, my Mokna tweet of the week is pretty obvious. Um, sparked a lot of indignation, this one, for uh, somebody who's been involved in crypto art for quite a long time. That would be Pablo R. Frail's uh, now infamous crypto art is dead tweet. I'm going to read it in its entirety, and I actually have a pretty surprising response. So this tweet, which has caused, is still causing quite a bit of uh, anger, says, Crypto art is dead. Reflecting on its journey, it's clear it was a passing fad sparking the current digital art revolution, but lacking the depth for longevity. Led by questionable ethics and self-destructive ethos, it was never built to last. On the brighter side, digital art and the blockchain is flourishing, more inclusive, less ideologically rigid. It's evolving, maturing, and carving its rightful place in culture. I'm actually going to stop there and not read the whole tweet. But people were pissed about this. Robness, as a specific example, has been dragging Pablo for this tweet. And a lot of people have been celebrating they're being blocked by Pablo for something here or there. But he's kind of turned himself into a public enemy, maybe not number one, but certainly in the top 10. Um, of late, I have to say on its face, I didn't necessarily disagree with this sentiment. Um, not that crypto art is dead necessarily, but I think it's interesting when we think about the fact that it's still really hard to pin down what crypto art is, especially post 2021 boom, when so many things that were not, you know, I, we spent great amount of time, you and I talking about um, art gnomes. Uh, what is crypto art article from 2018, which laid out 10 things that all crypto art is. And some of them apply to most art today, uh, geographically agnostic, dank, um, but some of them don't really apply um, as the market has continued to consolidate. People leveraged a criticism at this tweet that it was kind of a, a mouthpiece for VC interests that don't want crypto art to be its own kind of like rebellious anti-authoritarian movement or like have it that be like the beating heart of this thing and that it should just move out to calling itself digital art um, on the blockchain, which is perhaps a little bit more controllable by larger interests. But I found it an interesting discussion, at least to have 
I don't think crypto art is dead. I think the more interesting discussion is what is crypto art? We still don't know. How has it evolved? Well, if we're not starting with an, if, if we don't have a starting place for it, it's hard to know how it's changed um, other than like a, the, you know, famous like pornography, you know, it when you see it kind of thing. I'm not sure if you have any response to this, um, but I just thought it was worth at least a mention. Yeah, legally, I don't know if I'm allowed to have a response. Um, I will say outside of anything specific that, you know, declaring something dead is always right. That historically has always worked out in in the favor of uh, the the person who has. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Nietzsche declared God dead. Uh, that was pretty controversial. Um, you know, they have tracks that Bitcoin has has been declared dead, I think, 476 times. Um, <laughs> so, you know, just because you you. So as long as I am here in my mind, crypto art is alive. So I imagine many artists feel that way. Obviously, people feel that way. People are working tirelessly for this thing that we don't really know and understand, but hey, you know what? It feels kind of like a pretty good label. You know, it's an it's an outcome, but it might be one of those things when you shine the light on it that all the cockroaches scatter. Mm. Uh, and I think it's something that exists in the dark. I think it's something that exists in the underground. And that's because the mainstream and the people who like want to carry power uh, feel it as a threat. So sure. it, it has to be done almost in the dark. And the community enjoys being in the dark and the community enjoys being, I think, anti-authoritarian yeah. in a sense. It shapeshifts, it evolves, uh, it's it, it constantly changes and that is its strength and its beauty. That's what makes it, you know, an art movement of the future. That's what makes it more concerned with the collective than any one individual. So if you can't point to a figurehead, it's it's a hydra. It's popping up in places everywhere. I really like that you evoke that. Thanks, dog. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so look, you know, we know, we know it's hard. It's it's not a market. And I don't think the best art is a market. Do you, do you um, think we'll ever see a point at which there is a large influx of digital art onto the blockchain that is, and there is a confrontation between self-proclaimed crypto artists and others who are not like artists who are I not mean, interested in that moniker. I will say if it, if it hasn't happened already, then it's not going to happen. Mm. Right. We had the onboarding moment, right? Everybody brought their best digital work from the past 10 years and, you know, tried to monetize it or, you know, and this is a rightful opinion as well. They they thought the whole thing was a crock of shit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this kind of goes back to like the ordinals thing as well. People want to be involved from the beginning in something that feels underground, in something that feels unique, in something that feels authentic. But the the condensed time space from that period to like mainstream tragedy of the commons uh, is, <laughs> is, is so fast. We've talked about how fast these things and these concepts spread and, and they go everywhere. Um, and they probably touch pretty much everybody that they can touch so that, you know, when I walk into the, the 
say the frame store in 2021 and the woman framing a print is like, oh, you know, did you buy this as an NFT? It's it's shocking to me. It just also calls to mind to me, like things we've spoken about at length on the show, which are like Chrissy's and Sotheby's holding auctions of crypto art and refusing to use the terminology crypto art or that stupid digital art power in blockchain business, something rather the list that the observer posted a couple of months ago that was obviously all about art in the blockchain and also refused to use the word crypto art. It's just interesting to watch like this power struggle, which feels to me to be long over, still kind of rage on in these very specific atmospheres um, and through very specific emissaries. But maybe that's all that there is to be said about it now. And uh, maybe we'll come back in a couple of months and talk again about whether crypto art is dead or not uh, when the next, I don't know, much followed and uh, loudly proclaimed loudly proclamatory is that a word proclamatory loudly proclaiming uh individual uh announces crypto art's death we'll see if it's uh still around and people are still using the term um any last words on anything we talked about today any thoughts you didn't get out that you want to get out yeah you know something i'll just say it here because it was a tweet i wanted to write but time is so precious but like art art is dead you know art is dead Mm. um the world is dead everything is dead whatever, it doesn't matter, move on, who cares? Labels are stupid, right? They're, they're only words, uh, but ideas are important. And obviously the idea of crypto art, especially in the way that Art Gnome defined it in those 10 terms, is certainly alive and well. And it's a much better contemporary idea that is you know, more fair, more just, uh, more equitable than any sort of art market that has come before it. I like that. And on a positive note, after a very PFP and finance focused podcast. Cool. Thanks for uh, throwing that last little nugget of hope and gleaming um, confidence at us to end the podcast. Um, this has been Current Events with Max and Colborn. If you did like this podcast, please give us a follow, a subscribe, a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice. If you want to see the writing that we do in the same vein, please follow our Substack at museumofcrypto.substack.com. Please visit us on Twitter and see all the other stuff we're doing at Museum of Crypto. My name is Max Cohen. That's been Colborn Bell. And we're out of here. And we'll see you all real soon with another Current Events podcast. Take care. See ya. This has been another episode of Current Events with Max and Coborn. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Coborn, as always, for being my co-host. Our intro music was composed by Julian Brangold, so a big thank you to him. And once again, thank you to all of you for being with us. We'll be back soon with another episode of Current Events. So long.